You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm a little raspy today. Hopefully that will help keep you awake. Hebrews chapter 4. If you can stand, please do so. We'll read the first 13 verses. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. God, this is a challenging passage just to follow the argument and so I pray you would help us to be attentive to help us understand Lord confront us where we need confrontation assure us where we need assurance God speak and give us open and soft hearts and ears to hear your word we pray in Jesus name amen Last year, Americans spent about $1 trillion on travel and tourism, which was significantly higher than in 2022, but not quite back to where things were before the pandemic. Travel and tourism is a massive industry in our world today, and it's a growing industry. And why is that? Largely because of business travel, but also because people like to vacation whether that's heading down the road to visit grandma or catching a flight to the other side of the world, people like to get away and they're willing to spend money to do it because life is hard, work is exhausting, and we want to find rest. 
and rest is hard to find. The average American gets two weeks of paid vacation per year, and a quarter of us don't take it. In fact, 35% of us don't even get the recommended levels of sleep per night. Many of us are overworked and underrested, and the result is catastrophic. Last year, $200 billion were spent on stress-related healthcare costs. About 120,000 Americans died because of stress-related illnesses. Rest is vital for our physical welfare. But rest is also spiritually significant. And the Bible tells us that there is a wonderful, glorious, ultimate rest that awaits the people of God. Not just the rest of a good night's sleep or a weekend on the couch or even a fabulous vacation that lasts for weeks. No, friends, there is a supreme rest from that offers freedom from every hardship and every sorrow. A freedom to enjoy perfect wholeness and peace and everlasting joy. And today we're going to talk about the existence of this rest and how we enter it as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. And today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And today we're going to see two truths. Number one, God offers humanity the opportunity to enter His glorious rest. And number two, we can enter God's rest only by true faith. We begin with our first point. God offers humanity the opportunity to enter His glorious rest. Now, as we return to Hebrews, let's remind ourselves what is going on in this book. Our author is writing to a church of professing Christians. But while these folks profess faith in Jesus, they have a big problem. Many of the people in the church have fallen into spiritual laziness. Some even seem to be drifting away from the faith. They're not interested in being distinctly Christian anymore. They're open to just blending in to the Judaism of their day. And our author is profoundly concerned about this because he perceives that these people's drifting away may become a falling away. This may not just be the temporary backsliding of a wayward believer. This may be the beginning of apostasy, the renunciation of the faith, which shows us someone never really belonged to Jesus to begin with. And so our author is writing this book to warn his readers, to wake them up from their lethargy, to get them serious about their spiritual lives, to make sure that they really believe <clears throat> and to urge them like that, to live like it and to show them that it's foolish to walk away from Jesus for Judaism because Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. Now, so far in this book, we've seen that Jesus is better than the Old Testament and Jesus is better than the angels who gave God's law to man and Jesus is better than Moses. And this truth that Jesus is better than Moses led in last week's passage to our author's second warning, which is chapter 3. And chapter 3 told us that as Jesus followers, we don't want to wind up like the people who followed Moses, the Exodus generation. And our author introduced us to this negative example of the Exodus generation by quoting Psalm 95, in Hebrews 3, beginning at verse 7. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God told the Israelites he would deliver them from slavery in Egypt and bring them into a good land, a land of milk and honey, the promised land of Canaan. But while God made good on his word to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, the generation that was delivered did not inherit the promised land. Instead, they were condemned to wander the wilderness for 40 years until they all died off other than Caleb and Joshua. And why were they punished in this way? The psalm says, because they always went astray in their heart. Although on a few occasions the Exodus generation demonstrated faith in God, the overarching theme of their lives was persistent, unrepentant rebellion against God and his designated leader, Moses. Even though these Israelites had a good start, they had a terrible finish. They ultimately showed that they did not really belong to God by their disloyalty, and the result was judgment. The point of chapter 3 was that we must not be like them. We must not allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden our hearts against God's word. We must not fall away from the living God. They were disloyal to the leader God gave them, Moses. Well, who is the Lord that God has set over us? Chapter 3 says, it's Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the apostle in that he is the one sent by God to us. And he is our high priest because by his resurrection, he always lives to intercede for us. Now we come to chapter 4. And we're still in this warning passage. But now the focus shifts away from the Exodus generation and onto the rest which they failed to inherit. In Psalm 95, God said about the Exodus generation, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And now we're going to ask, what is this rest that God is speaking about? And we find the answer beginning halfway through chapter 4, verse 3. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his now, you might hear that and say, wow, that's really confusing. 
What's apparent when we read this section is that our author quotes phrases from Psalm 95 again and again, and he cites some examples from the Old Testament. But beyond that, the flow of this argument may not be clear to us. But I want you to know there's a method to what our author's doing. He's focusing on this phrase, they shall not enter my rest, and he is trying to explain what it means again and again, what God's rest is, and how people could enter into God's rest, what that means. Now, our author's argument is fundamentally a chronological argument, but he does not present it in a chronological way, which is why it's so hard to follow. So to help us understand this passage, we're going to go through this argument in a chronological sequence, and we're going to start at the beginning. Because this idea of God's rest was not something that started with the Exodus generation. No, it started at creation. Genesis 2.2 said God rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. In the six days of creation, Genesis 2 tells us the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. In six days, God built the heavens and the earth and the visible universe and he created their host, their inhabitants. So he filled the, the skies with the celestial bodies and he filled the earth with life and God's creation was complete. And on the seventh day, God rested. Not because he was tired and wanted to put his feet up. Now, the Hebrew verb translated rest simply means to cease, to stop. And the idea is on the seventh day, God stopped creating because he had already achieved everything he intended to do. His work was done. Nothing else remained. Now, when we think about this seventh day, I think that we have a tendency to view this as something past tense and finished. Okay, in six days, God made everything. On the seventh day, he rested. And then we think, well, what happened on the eighth day? Was God's rest over? No. This passage tells us God's creative work stands complete. And in that sense, God's rest continues. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. Are we saying that God created and then went on vacation? No. We are not deists. Deists say God built the world and walked away. That is false. God is present and involved in every aspect of reality. God is sovereignly at work in all things. And yet, that does not negate the truth that God is at rest from his creative labors. Jesus makes this point in John chapter 5. Jesus heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. John 5 verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Even though God rested on the seventh day, even though his creative work stands complete, that does not mean that God sits idle and, involved, and uninvolved. Even while he is at rest, God is at work in other ways. And in the same way, even on the Sabbath day, the sun was at work. Friends, God is working in our world, but the rest of the seventh day continues and that God is no longer building the universe. His creative work is over. That is God's rest. But if God's rest speaks about the end of his labor in creation, then our author has a question. 
because Psalm 95 says about the Exodus generation that they shall not enter my rest, which suggests that even though the Exodus generation failed to receive God's rest, other people might enter it. But what does it mean for people to enter God's rest? How can humans enter God's cessation from his creative work? Well, I answer this, our author thinks about rest as it appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. And so he speaks in verse 9 about the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath is the command God gave Israel, beginning in Exodus 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God required Israel to observe his calendar, which was six days for work and one day for rest. Now what was this Sabbath rest? Well, it wasn't a day for normal activity, and it wasn't a day for couch potatoing. It was a day to honor God. Isaiah 58, 13, God says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Sabbath was not a free-for-all to do whatever people wanted. No, the Israelites were to restrain their movement and not waste their day idly. But neither was the Sabbath some glum time of misery and forced silence. So often we think that's what God wants, us to just really not have any fun. That's not the idea at all. God says in Isaiah 58, the Sabbath was a delight. It was a time to to spend time with family and neighbors and rejoice in being off and read God's word and enjoy undisturbed peace. So far from being onerous, the Sabbath was a good gift that God gave his people. And it was a gift they were required to accept. Exodus 31.12, God says, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. God says above all, as a first priority, Israel had to keep the Sabbath because the Sabbath was the sign of God's covenant with Israel, the Mosaic covenant. So to disobey the Sabbath was to repudiate God's covenant and repudiate God's grace to Israel. So that's why breaking the Sabbath was arch treason that required the death penalty. So the Israelites were required to observe the Sabbath, a day of rest, which corresponded to God resting on the seventh day. Now is this the rest of God, which Psalm 95 anticipates? No. And we know that first because the Exodus generation generally did keep the Sabbath. They did enjoy that rest. So this cannot be the rest that they failed to receive because they received it. Second, the Sabbath is not the rest in view because our author's solution in this warning passage is not finally to tell his readers to keep the Sabbath. Probably because in chapter eight of this book, our author says, the old Mosaic covenant is no longer in force. 
It has been superseded by the new covenant. And the Sabbath was the sign of the old covenant. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's a lot different than the Old Testament ethic, right? Paul says don't let anybody judge you if you don't do these things. Well, what did, what, what did the Old Testament say? You don't do these things, you get dead, right? The reason there's a change is because today believers are under the new covenant. And Paul says all these elements of the old covenant, the dietary law and the calendar and the Sabbath, they prophetically foreshadow what we have in the new covenant, Jesus and all the wonderful blessings that are in him. So the ultimate expression of God's rest is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath points to some greater rest still to come. Okay, but what is this greater rest? Well, our author next considers what it might be by thinking about what the Exodus generation was denied, the promised land. Is that the rest of God, the promised land of Canaan? Certainly, that's what the Exodus generation was not allowed to receive. But after the Exodus generation died off, what happened? Well, Moses was succeeded by Joshua. And God told Joshua in Joshua 1.13, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And Joshua led the next generation of Israelites into the promised land and they conquered it. And Joshua 21:44 says the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. The next generation of Israelites enjoyed rest. So is this the, what the rest that Psalm 95 is talking about when it speaks about God's rest, inheriting the promised land? No, because look at Hebrews 4.8. Our author says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If you're using the old King James here, you'll see that in verse 8, instead of the name Joshua, the name Jesus appears. Because in Hebrew and Greek, these names are the same. And the King James translators made a mistake as they tried to follow the argument of chapter 4. So they wrote Jesus here. But verse 8 is not about Jesus. It's talking about Joshua from the Old Testament. Joshua gave his generation rest in the promised land. But that cannot be the rest that Psalm 95 anticipates because Israel obtained it. And Israel remained in Canaan for centuries, even down to the time when David wrote Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, David says that God's offer of rest remains open. And if his readers want to inherit it, they must not be like the Exodus generation. Now, if God's rest simply meant occupying the promised land, this would make no sense. Because David and his readers were already living in the promised land. If God's rest was just the promised land, they already had it. There was nothing else to be received. And this warning about failing to receive it wouldn't make any sense because they already had it. So the rest of God in Psalm 95 cannot be the promised land. It's something beyond that. So the, this rest is something beyond the Sabbath day. It is beyond the conquest of the promised land. And it's even beyond anything that happened in David's day. And our author thinking about this recognizes that this means... God's offer of rest is timeless. If it was offered to the Exodus generation, and if it was offered in David's day, 
then that means this offer was still open in his day, 2,000 years ago when he wrote this book. And friends, God's timeless offer of rest remains open today. Hebrews 4.6 says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God's rest is something God still offers mankind. It's something we may still lay hold of even today. Now, not everybody will. The Exodus generation proved that. But David says, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Don't be like the Exodus generation because God's rest is available to you. You can enter in to the ultimate rest of God through Jesus Christ, who is better than the Sabbath day. Who is better than Joshua because he gives a better rest than Joshua gave Israel. Jesus gives his people ultimate rest. You say, okay, but what is that rest? Well, look at Hebrews 4 verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here's what the Sabbath ultimately points to. Not resting one day a week but a final, eternal rest. Unending, joyous life in the presence of God and His people in the new creation. Hebrews describes this as a city which God has prepared for His people. Hebrews 11.10 says it is the city whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 13.14, which is a verse we should all think about a lot this year, says for here we have no lasting city. Friends, this world is not our home. But we seek the city that is to come. And what is this city? Hebrews 12, says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is God's rest? And it's the consummation of all things. It is the new creation where God dwells, where Jesus is, where we will be made perfect where we will dwell alongside all believing loved ones that we've enjoyed to, to know in our lives, where we will dwell with all believers across all ages and all the holy angels in unending joy and feasting. Just like the Sabbath of old was a delightful time to spend with family and friends. Man, that's what the new creation will be. In the place Revelation says is the dwelling place of God where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, if you belong to God through Jesus Christ, the bliss of the heavenly Jerusalem will be yours if we do not harden our hearts to his word. 
This is what God offers humanity. This is the rest which we are invited to share, the place where work will be finished. For just as God rested on the seventh day, and that was the end of his work, the new Jerusalem will be the end of our work too. Now, sometimes when people read verse 10, they think, well, this phrase, rested from our works, is talking about the truth that we're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and not by works. And that this verse is saying that we take hold of salvation by letting go of our efforts to earn God's favor. Now, to be sure, we do not get saved by our works. But I don't think that's what verse 10 is saying. Because in the next verse, our author tells his readers to strive to enter God's rest. He says, y'all better do some works. Not because works save, they don't. But he says this to his readers because they were spiritually lazy. And they were drifting into apostasy. And the reality of their faith was becoming an open question. And he's saying, hey, look, if you really have faith, that's going to show up in your life. You better do something if you really are claiming to have faith. So I don't think verse 10 is a comment on ceasing from our works in this life because that would seem to blunt the command he gives in verse 11. No, I think verse 10 is describing the character of the eternal rest that describes or that awaits God's people. Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. I think that's what verse 10 is saying. At the end of our lives, in Christ, we will find rest. The end of busyness, the end of anxiety, the end even of all of our good and righteous strivings for holiness, which should characterize our lives. On that day, the grind of life will be done. Just like on the seventh day, when there was no work left for God to do, And Ephesians 2 says God has created works for his people to walk in. Well, friends, one day we will have exhausted all of those good works. There will be nothing left for us to do. And then we will share in this state of our works being done. And all that will be left is for us to enjoy the rewards that God gives us and enjoy his presence forever. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to sit around in heaven forever doing nothing. Any more than the truth of God's rest means that he sits around idly. He doesn't. Neither will we. Revelation 22 says we will worship him. And the Greek word there speaks of service. Friends, we will serve God in eternity. We will have things to do. But it won't be mundane, grudging work. It will be wonderful. It will be joyous. Because that's what the new creation will be in every respect. Perfect glory and joy. And this is what God offers us. But this leads to our second point, which is that we enter God's rest only by true faith. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. Today's passage is clear. Not everybody enters the rest of God. Not everyone will be saved because of the problem of sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We are sinners by nature. We are born fallen and rebellious. Romans 5 says, Many died through one man's trespass. Adam sinned in the garden, and he passed that sinful nature down to all of us. So we are all born sinners. And then we act 
in line with that sinful nature and we become sinners by choice. We rebel against God. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Friends, how many times have we failed to do what we know is right? How many times have we not obeyed God's commands? How many times have we done what God has forbidden? Or even just desired what God has forbidden? Because in Matthew 5, Jesus says what we desire. We desire sin. That counts as sin. Friends, we're sinners. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't just mean physical death. As sinners, we are God's enemies. And Hebrews 10 tells us what God's enemies can expect. Hebrews 10.27 says a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's talking about hell. That's the opposite of God's rest. Eternal condemnation. And Revelation tells us hell is characterized by torment and by an absence of rest. It says those in hell have no rest day or night. Hell is the tragedy of the ages. And sadly, many people are heading there. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. We all know people who are heading for hell. Maybe some of us here are heading for hell. That's where the path of unrepentant sin leads. But praise God, by His grace, there is another route. Because Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That narrow, that narrow gate leads to what we're talking about today, the joyous, eternal rest of God. And friends, that path, that opportunity to enter God's rest remains open today. Now, don't misunderstand me. The path that leads to life is not easy. It is not all sunshine and rainbows. It is painful. It is taxing. Jesus says you're going to be persecuted. He says you've got to take up your cross and follow him and die to self daily. But how do we get off the broad road that leads to hell and onto the narrow road that leads to life? Hebrews 4.3 tells us the condition of salvation is belief. Well, what is belief? We talked about true belief a lot last week, and this is what we said. True belief does not mean just believing in God. James 2 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Anybody, even a demon can believe God is real. That doesn't mean you belong to him. Likewise, saving faith is not simply an abstract belief in the facts of the gospel. Many today say, Jesus died for me. Jesus is risen. Jesus is Lord. And yet, for so many, those words have no impact on their lives. They say the words, but they live like it isn't true. Living in sin, no big deal. This world, that's all there is. And they live as though they have no allegiance to Christ. There is no reality about their claim of belief. But friends, real faith is not just intellectually assenting to the facts of the gospel. It is a true trust in the reality of those facts. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross. That means sin is terrible and it deserves death. Jesus paid the terrible penalty that our sin deserves. 
Jesus is risen. He has opened the door to eternal life and the new creation. He is God in human flesh. He is Lord. And that means we actually have to listen to his word and strive to obey it. That's what real faith looks like. It's not just nodding to some words. It's living like the content of those words is real. Likewise, faith isn't just taking out a fire insurance policy. So many people today think, oh, I can pray the sinner's prayer once and then just go back to a life of unrepentant sin because, because I'm saved by faith. Well, that's not the faith that saves because saving faith is repentant faith. That's why Jesus says in Mark 1, repent and believe the gospel. That's why Paul says in Acts 17, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. We must turn aside from our old lives of sin. We must have a change of allegiance to stop worshiping and following ourselves and start following Jesus. Real faith is evidenced in life. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if, any was in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you're really a believer, your life should look different than it used to look. Because you've been made new. I'm not saying you become perfect. You won't. But things should be different. But finally, real belief is something that endures. Man, we saw last week, at various points in time, the Exodus generation had faith. They showed faith in God when they kept the Passover. Hebrews 11 says they had faith when they crossed the Red Sea. And yet Hebrews 4.2 says, of the Exodus generation that they were not united by faith with those who listened. Or Jude, verse 5 says, Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And who was destroyed in the wilderness? Virtually the whole Exodus generation. Even though at points they had something that looked like faith, in the end God accounted them as being unbelievers. Because real faith is not merely something that shows up at a few limited moments in our lives. Real faith is characterized by endurance, by a lifelong duration. And our passage says this is the precondition to entering God's rest, true belief. And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Do you believe Jesus is Lord and Savior, that he is God and man, that he has died for your sins and risen from the dead? Do you believe that? And if you say yes, does your claim of faith have evidence? Do you live like that's real? Have you turned aside from living the way you used to live? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I know that's not really me. Man, friend, I beg you, cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus because hell is real and God's judgment is coming. Turn to Jesus and live. But if you say, yes, I have faith, I pray that the belief we have is true faith because that's the only path that leads to life. Everything else ends in destruction. Whether that's trusting works or trusting some other religion or just not having true faith in Jesus. Only true faith leads to life. But friends, while we may profess faith, our author wants us not merely to say the words, but to watch ourselves so that we don't drift away. Because that was the issue with the Hebrews, right? They'd become lazy. They were spiritually adrift. And while for the moment they were still professing Christ, our author is worried they're walking away, that their profession of faith 
is about to be exposed as false. That they are about to be revealed as still really being on the broad road that leads to destruction. And so, in the final verses of our passage today, he issues two commands for his readers. And if we claim Christ, we need to listen to these two commands. We find the first in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The first instruction is let us fear. Now, you might not like the sound of that, because fear isn't fun. And we might bristle at this idea that we should have any fear about our spiritual condition. And we might want to answer back immediately with 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. But the Greek word translated fear in 2 Timothy speaks about a moral cowardice, a fear that is afraid to stand up and be counted for Jesus. That's always sin. But sometimes fear is appropriate. We should fear God, right? Proverbs 1.7 says that's the beginning of wisdom. And in the same way here, we see another kind of fear commanded. Professing believers are to fear about failing to obtain God's rest. We said earlier God has put his rest on offer. And we want to inherit that rest, don't we? We don't want to wind up like the Exodus generation, whom God said they shall not enter my rest. So we must not follow their example. But what happened to them? Well, just like us, they heard some good news. Now, the good news for them was a little different than for us. I mean, we believe in the the good news for us is the deity, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They didn't know about that. But what was God's good word for them? Exodus 3.8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God said, I'll save you from slavery and bring you into the promised land. And they heard that offer. But our author says the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Friends, the gospel won't do you any good if you don't respond with real faith. The Exodus generation heard the good news, but the overwhelming majority of them didn't believe. And so what happened? There was a separation of believers from unbelievers. Caleb and Joshua entered God's rest. Everybody else got judged, which goes to show that hearing God's word doesn't benefit you unless you believe. And our author wants us to have fear in this same way, to ask ourselves in a real searching way, have I truly believed? Because only true belief enters God's rest. Now, maybe you hear this and you think, I resent being asked to examine myself again and again. I know my faith is real. What about eternal security? What about assurance of salvation? Why must we talk about this over and over again? Well, because Hebrews does. But let me say, these are great questions, but let me answer them. Yes, the Bible teaches eternal security. Those who truly believe will never be lost. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul says in Romans 8, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal security is true. 
And yes, the Bible offers assurance of salvation. In fact, a whole book of the Bible is written about that. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Yes, we can have assurance. But you know what 1 John doesn't say? Well, if you made a profession of faith at some point in your life, you're saved. And he doesn't say, well, if you prayed the sinner's prayer, you're saved. No, what he does is he gives a series of tests by which we are to examine ourselves. So 1 John 2 verse 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's a test. If your life's generally characterized by obedience, you should be assured by that. But if it isn't, you shouldn't. Similarly, 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if your life is characterized by loving believers, you can be assured by that. But if you hate professing believers, you should not be assured. 1 John 3.24 says, By this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So if our lives are, are marked by true doctrine, we can be assured by that. If they aren't, then we shouldn't be. So even the book of the Bible written to give us assurance, says there are no easy guarantees. There is no carte blanche. There is only an exhortation to examine ourselves by these tests. Because while eternal security is true, and while there is assurance of salvation to be had, the Bible also warns us, like in these chapters, that there is something that might look like real faith, which is not real faith, and which shows it's not real faith because it falls away because it rejects the lordship of Jesus and prefers slavery to sin over salvation. And friends, how many people do you know that at some point gave evidence of salvation only to walk away from the faith? I've known too many. And our author's point is that we need to be on guard. We need to be watchful that we are not next. And who should have this fear? He says any of us. And notice our author's own humility because he includes himself in that. He says us, not you. He's watchful for himself, and he wants us to be watchful too. But how do we watch? We find this in the last command in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. One more time, he points to the Exodus generation, who showed they weren't really believers because of their persistent, unrepentant disobedience, their repeated rebellions against God and Moses. That showed they didn't really know God. Friends, we don't want to be like them. We want to inherit God's rest. We want to have real faith. Not faith that shows itself to be false at the final hurdle. So what must we do? He says we are to strive. Now if you're well versed in Paul's writings, you might bristle at this. Remembering Paul's words about salvation in Romans 9.16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I mean, that's true. We cannot earn our salvation by hard work, no matter how hard we strive. Ephesians 2 says we're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. 
And yet the same Paul who wrote that also writes this in 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Even Paul had the same concern that our author has, a fear about failing to inherit God's rest. So what's the answer? We've got to strive. That means we've got to be serious and energetic about our spiritual lives, which is what the original audience was not doing. They were drifting, chapter 2 says. They were sluggish. They were lazy, chapter 6 says. There was no striving. There was just coasting. Only presumption. Oh, I'm good. I don't need to worry about this anymore. And the result was massive danger for these folks, which is why we have this book. But instead of coasting, instead of giving ourselves unbiblical assurance, assuming that we're okay, our author says, no, strive after God. And so six times in this book, he tells us, instead of drifting, we need to draw near. And we'll see the first of these references later in this chapter. When he says, draw near to Jesus when you have need, pray. And we need to pursue obedience, not because obedience saves us, but because saved people obey. We need to, as we saw in chapter 3 last week, exhort one another to be involved in the lives of fellow believers and let other believers encourage and warn us. We need to get serious about the things Jesus has required of us because it is Jesus who has required them. So our striving in these areas shows that we really believe in him and our shrugging these things off says maybe we really don't. But friends, while we may be able to fool others, while we may be able to fool even ourselves, we cannot fool God. And that's what the last verses tell us. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And these verses tell us much about the scripture. But notice how verse 12 begins with the word for. That always signals an explanation of what was just said before. So verses 12 and 13 tell us why we must strive after God's rest. And the answer is that God is not simply satisfied because we profess faith. And God is not simply fooled because we know some Christian lingo or come to church with regularity or put on a false face of holiness while we're around the saints. God sees through all of that. We are naked and exposed before him, verse 13 says. We cannot hide from him. We cannot deflect his gaze. He knows and sees all, and he sees it as it really is. And friends, we will stand before him and give an account. And when we do, he will judge us for what we really are and not what we pretend to be. 1 Corinthians 4 says the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Romans 2.16 speaks of that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Do you think you have secrets from God? You don't. You will answer for them. But while in the end we will all give an account to Jesus, prior to that God has given us his word, his self-disclosure in the Old Testament and in Jesus, and in the writings about Jesus. God has given us the Bible. And in the Bible, we can understand God's will. 
and we can reliably examine ourselves in advance of God's judgment by the scriptures. Because God has invested a vitality in the scriptures so that when we sit under them with an open heart, they examine us in the closest possible way. James 1 says the Bible is like a mirror. And here we read it's like a sword, able to make the finest incisions, to cut apart the most intertwined realities, like dividing joint from marrow or soul from spirit, distinguishing things that may seem so intertwined we didn't even know they could be separated. But the scripture can cut the finest distinctions by its potent ability to reveal the truth. And this living word, the scripture, examines us and it exposes us to ourselves just like we're exposed before God. And it judges the intentions of our heart. So if we sit under it, not like with a hardened heart like the Exodus generation, but with an open heart, it will lay us bare. And it will show us if there is an unclean way in us. And it will point us to find grace in Jesus. But if we will not heed it, that we can expect in the last day, God's word will stand against us as a sword of judgment, which strikes us down because we will be condemned for having hardened our hearts to God's word. Friends, the scripture tells us the truth about ourselves. And what chapters 3 and 4 say is we must not be presumptuous about our spiritual condition. We must remember this terrible example of the Exodus generation who did not know God's ways, who constantly rebelled against him, who did not inherit God's rest. And when we think about them, who started off so well and ended so disastrously, we dare not say, I'm safe, I can just coast spiritually. We dare not spiritually drift, because if we do, we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3 says. Our hearts will grow cold and distant from God, And if left unchecked in time, we will fall away and show that we never really knew him to begin with. Instead, the scripture says we must have a healthy fear about ourselves and energetically strive after God's rest. Get serious about our spiritual lives. Awake from slumber and lethargy. Be serious about obeying and draw near to Christ and stay there. We must run to win the prize. And what is that prize? Something better than a long weekend. Something better than the best vacation. It is the grand, eternal rest of God. The greatest of all inheritances. Boundless, endless joy in the presence of God and His people forever. Something far better than all we might ask or think. Friends, the rest of God is real and it's worth pursuing. And we can find it in just one way. By drawing near to Jesus who says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we draw near to Jesus today.